there is no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated me, alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look on me as a stranger. If I summon my servant, he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me when I appear. They ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped by only the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends, have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say, how will we hound him since the root of trouble lies in him? You should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that it is there that there is judgment. The second reading today uh, comes from Revelation, chapter fourteen, verses one to three. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their hearts. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This is God's word. Thank you, Catherine. Hello, everyone. It's great to have you here. If we haven't yet met, uh, my name is Wal. I'm the senior minister here at NCA Church. And uh, hopefully, uh, as we go through the slides in the sermon, uh, there'll be a number at the bottom, and uh, if you've got questions, uh, by all means, do send them through to that text, otherwise there'll also be a microphone that will pass around and you can ask your questions live. Um, but that'll, that'll help all of us, just to keep uh, processing God's word. Um, one of the most engaging books I've read in recent years is Any Ordinary Day uh, by the journalist Lee Sales. Are you familiar with this book? 
Some people, yes. Um, uh, as a journalist, Lee Sales uh, often encounters people kind of going through the worst moments of their life in the full glare of the media. And so for the last 25 years, um, watching such tragedies play out at close quarters, that's just, just been her professional life. Uh, but in 2014, uh, one particular run of really bad news stories, as well as her own kind of brush with mortality through a really difficult circumstance in the birth of one of her children, sent her looking for answers about how vulnerable each one of us is to a completely life-changing event. Um, essentially, this book is really a set of intimate interviews with people who have been there and done that as she tries to make sense of the fact that in this world, disaster seems to be able to strike any one of us at any minute. Uh, it's particularly fascinating to read her interviews with a couple of Christian people. She acknowledges herself that she has no faith in God. And, um, but you can see her try to hold that at bay as she wants to understand the people that she's talking to but also just her trying to understand how you could believe in a God who would allow his people to suffer in such ways. Does that make sense? Is it fair of God? I hope it won't surprise you then uh, to hear that I've thought of this book multiple times over the last few weeks as together as a church we've been working through the book of Job, this extraordinary tale of this extraordinary man who from remarkable heights of prosperity and wealth, and they really were remarkable, but was then brought low to the depths of disaster that were kind of as deep in the opposite direction as the, his previous heights were high. So he faced the bankruptcy of losing all in the same day, all his oxen, his cattle, his camels, his donkeys, his servants. He also faced the bereavement on that very same day of losing all of his children, seven sons and three daughters. Not long after that, he faced his own body wasting away through painful sores so that he was reduced to sitting on an ash heap and kind of picking at himself with a broken piece of pottery. It was an experience of suffering so severe and so all-encompassing that we might even say in the whole of human history, with one exception, it has never been equaled. And as poor Job has been going through this awful experience, there's been two things that have really been exercising his heart and his mind more than anything else. The first is the issue of how God is treating him in this whole experience. Because you see, Job's knowledge of God begins with the simple fact that he is God. Uh, because he is God, therefore he rules all things. Everything is under his sovereign control. But the consequence of that is that what Job is now experiencing, it must have come to him from God. The heavy hand that presses down upon him, I mean, it has to be God's hand. That's how it seems to Job. To put all that another way, based on his terribly intense experience of suffering, Job's experience of life at the moment is that God, the sovereign God, is treating him as his enemy. But he's not God's enemy. He loves God. He trusts God. He's blameless and upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. So why is God treating him like an enemy? So that's Job's first problem, how God is treating him in all this 
Alongside that, though, Job's second problem is his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who have come down to comfort him, or at least that was their intention when they first set out to spend time with him. In actual fact, though, they haven't comforted him at all. They've really just tormented him. Because, you see, as they look on at the the suffering that Job is experiencing, it seems to them that only one conclusion can possibly be made which is that God is punishing Job for some sin he must have committed and therefore he needs to repent. Job, for his part, he insists that he is innocent, not meaning that he's sinless, but certainly in the sense that he's committed no such sin that would mean God is punishing him in this way, in these sufferings. But the friends insist that Job has got it wrong. And so the conversation goes on and all four of them have a chance to speak. You can see up on the screen how this works. So Eliphaz speaks and then Job replies and Bildad speaks and Job and then Zophar and then Job and that's one cycle. And then you go through it all a second cycle and it starts a third cycle. We don't quite get all the way through. And today we're at chapters 18 and 19, which is really in the middle of the second cycle. And by this point, the conversation has become a full-blown argument. So if you've got a Bible there, just look back a chapter to Job 18. At the start of Job 18, uh, Bildad says to him, when will you end these speeches? Be sensible and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight? But then the start of chapter 19, Job's response is, well, how long are you going to torment me? How long are you going to crush me with your words? Ten times now you've reproached me. You you shamelessly attacked me. Uh, We all know, don't we, the the experience in life when you're kind of in an argument with someone and uh, it just kind of devolves to the point that you you just almost want to stomp your feet and you want to slap your hand down on the bench and say, oh, well, just can you stop talking? Like, do you know that experience? It's never a great point to get to. It's probably conversation should have stopped five minutes earlier. But by Job, chapters 18 and 19, that's Job and his friends. They are just completely fed up with each other by this point. They've got no more patience for each other. Job's friends think he is talking twaddle and regarding them as no more intelligent than a cow. Job thinks his friends are attacking him and tearing him to pieces by their words. And so that's where things have got to. That's the context. What happens in the actual speeches? Well, let's have a look. Let's start with Bildad in chapter 18, which is really a lesson in what not to say to a suffering friend. If we wanted a way to remember it, perhaps we could call him Bildad the Blunt or maybe even Bildad the Bludgeoner. Uh, Do you remember chapter 8 a couple of weeks ago? And he basically said to Job that the reason his children had died was because they had sinned against God and God had simply handed them over to the punishment that was due. It's almost an unthinkably callous, cruel thing to say to a grieving father, but that's Bildad the Blunt. Now in chapter 19, he comes gunning for Job himself. So verse 5, he says, The lamp of a wicked man is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. The light in his tent becomes dark and the lamp beside him goes out. In other words, one of the ways that God punishes a wicked person is by kind of putting out his light and thrusting him into darkness. And never mind that this is almost exactly one of the ways that Job has described his situation. That's the very point Bildad is trying to make. 
God casts the wicked into darkness. Job has been cast into darkness, therefore Job must be wicked. That's the logic for Bildad. But wait, as the ad says, there's more. Because the fate of the wicked is also in verses 7 to 9 to be trapped and ensnared and caught up in a net. And in verses 11 to 14, it is to be taken over by terrors and calamity and disaster. And verses 15 to 16, it's to be burned up and destroyed. And verses 17 to 20, it is to be completely forgotten and banished from the world. It is to be left without survivors or descendants or offspring and to have no name. This is a terribly bleak picture that Bildad is painting here. One person who writes on this book has said that in effect Bildad is really describing the reality of hell and we're probably hard pressed to disagree with that aren't we? And again never mind that so many of Bildad's words and phrases echo some of the very things that Job has said about his situation that is not a design flaw of Bildad's speech it's a feature It's the whole point of what he is trying to say. And so the conclusion in verse 21 is, surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the the place of the man who does not know God. Now he doesn't quite go all the way to dot the I and cross the T. He doesn't have to point out, Job, you are the wicked man I'm talking about and God's treating you as you deserve. He doesn't need to by this point. The implication is completely clear. The simple fact of the matter is that Job must have sinned and he's experiencing from God the fate of the wicked. There's no other explanation that will fit the facts. Well, that's Bildad, chapter 18. How does Job respond? A couple of ways. First of all, in verses 4 to 20. I put verses 5 to 20. Let's go with that. Verses 5 to 20. He levels an accusation against God. Uh, So from verse 5, Job says to his friends, If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me. He has drawn his net around me. Though I cry, cry violence, I get no response. I call for help. There's no justice. He has blocked my way, so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of honor. He's removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I'm gone. He uproots me like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. And the result of all this is Job's complete alienation from just about everyone. So in verses 17 to 20, he talks about how even his closest friends and his relatives have gone away and they have forgotten him. And his servants refuse to answer him and his own wife is repulsed by his bad breath and there are little children in the street who when they see him, they mock. He is all alone. And so as far as Job is concerned, God has come against him hard and it's brought him nothing but disaster. And yet he remains convinced that he has committed no sin that would justify God's punishment of him in all these ways. And that's why he insists in verse 6 that God has wronged him. So first of all, he brings his accusation against God, as we've seen through this book. 
The second thing he does, though, is he, he pleads for mercy from his friends. Uh, so verse 21, have pity on me, my friends, have pity. The hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? And we know, of course, that in verse 21, uh, Job's words are not strictly accurate. Because, yes, back in chapters 1 and 2 of the book, two times Satan challenged God to stretch out his hand and to strike Job. But on both of those occasions, God responded by saying, okay, Satan, he's in your hands to do with him as you will. But Job knows nothing of that conversation in the heavenly court and he's just calling things the way he sees them, which is that the hand of God has struck him. But again, verse 22 just shows us that second problem Job has, doesn't it? The pitiless comfort of his friends. And perhaps it would have been okay once, maybe even twice, for them to come to Job gently and to suggest to him the possibility that he was suffering because of some sin. But Job is a wise man. They've acknowledged that themselves and he has repeatedly insisted that he has not sinned in any such manner that would lead God to punish him like this and yet they have not paid attention to Job's words. They've doubled down and they've pursued him like a dog with a bone and only become more insistent that Job must be wrong and so now really for the sake of friendship, if nothing else, Job pleads with them, will you just show me some compassion Will you show me some pity, some mercy, some love, some grace, some comfort? The third thing Job does, he declares his knowledge of a redeemer. Uh, verse 23, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. In other words, he wants a permanent record of the things that he said so that at some point in the future, even beyond his own death, if it needs to be that way, his case against God would be vindicated and it might be made publicly known that he was in the right. And then he goes on in verse 25 and he says some of the most famous and most loved words in this whole book and words that have been turned into songs and rightly so. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Uh, one of the things that's come up a number of times so far throughout this series is the verdict of God that we hear in chapter 42, that Job's friends have not spoken the truth about God like Job has. And a couple of times it's been said that one of the ways Job speaks rightly about God is that in all of his complaints, in all of his anguish, in all of his questioning of God's ways, yet he never loses the sense of genuine relationship to God, with God. 
And so God is the one who at times Job addresses directly. The friends don't do that, Job does. And God is the one from whom Job looks for help. Job, God is the one with whom God, Job longs to be at peace. And I'm not sure that we see this going on in the book of Job any more clearly than in the verses we've just read together. With all of his heart, he longs for the God that he loves. He longs to see the God he loves. Indeed, he's fully confident that one day he will see the God that he loves. Even after his death, face to face with his own eyes, him and not another. And this is a very rich development from what we saw last week in chapter 19. Uh, sorry, in chapter 9. Uh, if you were here last week in chapter 9, one of the things we saw, Job just kind of began to, to just hope that this vast gulf between him and God, there could be a mediator who would come between them and, and bring them together and, and make them at peace and, and sort everything out. I just want someone to help us here. I need a mediator. But see, here in chapter 19, there's no talk of a mediator at all. It's just going to be him and God, face to face, eye to eye. It almost seems like as the dispute with his friends has continued and as Job has kept wrestling with the nature of the God whom he knows and loves, his faith has begun to take strength again. And it's begun to regain its clarity and it's begun to regain its confidence and it's that God really can be trusted to sort everything out in the end. And so Job's certain and confident knowledge is that he has a living redeemer. And even if it's only on the other side of his death, yet even so, they will see each other one day face to face. And there will not be a mediator. What an anchor for Job's soul this knowledge of God must have been. Is it any wonder that he speaks of how his heart yearns? And then finally, and very briefly, Job warns his friends, verse 28, uh, if you say, my friends, if you say how we will hound him since the root of trouble lies in him, well, you should fear the sword yourselves for wrath will bring punishment by the sword and then you will know that there is judgment. Uh, there's a well-known verse from the New Testament that warns those who would be teachers uh, that they will be judged more strictly. And I, I think that's basically what Job is saying here to his friends. Uh, his friends are convinced that their judgment of Job is correct. And yet it's not correct. And so they must take warning because God's judgment of them most certainly will be correct. Well, uh, there's Job 18 and 19. What, what lessons can we take from it? I've got three. And uh, you can see these on the outline. First, uh, the judgment of God against the wicked really is awful. Uh, in this, Bildad is completely correct in so much of what he says through chapter 18. The judgment of God against the wicked is the kind of thing that once we understand it properly, we wouldn't wish it upon our worst enemies. 
And I don't think this teaching is in any way lessened by the time we come to the New Testament. In fact, if anything, I suspect it is strengthened. In fact, it's often remarked that Jesus himself is the person who speaks most clearly and most urgently and most heartbreakingly about the reality of hell as the destiny of the wicked. And so friends, if you are here with us this morning and you know in your heart that you are not yet someone who trusts God like Job trusted God or who loves God like Job loved God or who fears God and shuns evil like Job feared God and shunned evil, then the judgment of God and what God has done so that we don't have to face it ourselves is absolutely the most important thing that we would love to speak with, with you about. Write a little note on one of the orange welcome cards, put it in the silver box. Have a morning tea, come and speak to someone that you've seen up the front here. It's just the most urgent thing for all of us to know that there is a way out from the judgment of God, that God has provided. Second, at times, godly people will suffer in this world. Even blameless and upright people like Job, at times, will suffer in this world. The reasons for which may be never known to them but which exist in the mind of God. And in this, Bildad and his friends were completely wrong. For this is not a category that they had in their theological system. This is not a category that they had in their so-called knowledge of how God works in this world. They were so certain that they could interpret God's actions towards Job with absolute precision no margin for error, they insisted that they knew what God was doing. But they were wrong. And they did not speak the truth about God. And so I think Job's warning to them is also a warning for us and for anyone who would run around today insisting that they know how God always works in this world, even though they don't know such things at all. And it's a warning for anyone who would run around today to insist that when a godly person suffers, it's actually because they're not that godly at all. They must have sinned. God must be punishing them for it. But Job teaches us that at times, godly people will suffer in this world the reasons for which may never be fully known to them, but which exist in the mind of God alone. And we must hold on to this category that Job's friends forgot. Uh, finally, though, as we read these chapters today on kind of our side of Jesus Christ and of his death and resurrection, we can say with absolute confidence that ultimately Jesus Christ is the living redeemer of whom Job spoke. God 
himself, the eternal God himself, in the person of his son who came into our world to bear in his body on the cross that terrifying judgment of God against the wicked. The righteous for the unrighteous, the godly for the ungodly, the blameless and upright sinless one for the sake of the wicked and the sinful. And so you see, Jesus Christ is the one who faced a suffering even greater than Job's. Being abandoned by God was not simply his sense of things, how life felt in his death on the cross. That was his reality. So that we might not have to bear the judgment of God ourselves. But in his resurrection from the dead, he has also been raised to eternal life. Never again to see decay. That one day he might return once more to stand again upon the earth. Calling to be with him at his side and with his heavenly father. Everyone who has trusted in him. The living redeemer. And then we too, on that day, shall see him face to face with our own eyes. Us and not another. Oh, that our hearts might yearn within us. Let me lead us in prayer. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Job and we do pray that you would enlighten our darkness and comfort us in all our troubles and strengthen our faith and be the anchor for our hope. Amen.